0: Welcome to worship. Wherever you're worshiping from, we're glad that you've joined us today. My name is Sheila and I'll be your host for this online worship experience. If this is your first time with us, we want to give you a very special welcome. If you'll check in with us, we'll send you an email with a gift card for pumpkin spice latte or the beverage of your choice this coming week. We're in week five of our series, Revelation. Pastor Spencer has a great message just ahead for us. Speaking of the sermon, you'll find sermon discussion questions and more online at schweitzer.church/next. Here you can connect with us, follow along with the sermon and find more ways to be involved at Schweitzer Church. Next up is Stephanie with our announcements.
1: Hi, welcome to Schweitzer. I'm Stephanie. Coming up in just a couple of weeks, on Friday, October 21st and Saturday, October 22nd, our Healing Prayer Ministry is hosting a very special seminar and prayer service. This will be an opportunity for anyone who wants to go deeper in prayer and also for caregivers. We have a group coming in from Falls Church, Virginia to lead us and on Saturday night, there'll be a very special prayer service open to anyone in our church or community. You can find out more at the lobby or by checking out schweitzer.church prayer. Coming up at the end of the month on October 29th, our Schweitzer kids team is hosting a fall festival. Here's Stephanie, the other Stephanie, to tell you more. Hey Schweitzer Church family. I am so excited about this month's fall festival. This is a great outreach opportunity for our church to connect with the community. The fall festival will be on Saturday, October 29th from four to 6 p.m. We are gonna need lots of volunteers to help out with our Candyland themed game in the gym, activities in the parking lot, or to host a trunk for our trunk or treats. Also, we'll have a pumpkin patch, some bounce houses, lots of free food, and if you feel like sticking around, we are gonna show Coco for our family movie night. This is a great opportunity to invite your friends, family, and neighbors. If you want to volunteer, please sign up at slash fallfest. Once again, hope to see you there. Thanks, Stephanie. Be sure to sign up today at the blue booth or online at slash kids and start inviting everyone you know to the fall festival. Coming up next Sunday on October 16th from 7 to 8 p.m., our Modern Worship team is hosting a special night of worship. This will be a beautiful evening as we spend time together in music, scripture, and prayer. We really hope to see you there. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us this morning. Let's continue with worship.
0: Thanks, Stephanie, for those great announcements. If you're joining us live today, we invite you to join in the chat. Say hello to your friends. Give us your insights. And if you find yourself in need of prayer, we have someone waiting for you. Just press that button and we'll be right with you. And now, let's continue in worship. As we come to this time of prayer, I invite you to join me as we share our hearts with God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are thankful for who you are, for your power, your glory, your goodness, and for your compassion to all people. God, this week we're especially mindful of those that have been affected by the recent hurricane. We pray for their comfort and their healing We know there are people that are homeless, that have lost loved ones. Some people have lost everything. God, help us to reach out. We know that we're states away from them, but we still know that you have empowered us with the gifts of care and of compassion. Help us to do what we can to reach out and care for others. And God, as a church this week, we want to pray especially that we are spiritually awakened. As Christians, sometimes we just get so set in our ways. And God, we ask you to empower us, to excite us about our faith, and to to let us move forward with your work and your ministry. We thank you for doing that for us. And the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this time of offering, I want to share with you about an event that happened just this past weekend here at Schweitzer Church. We had the Hometown Women's Retreat. The theme of our retreat was the goodness and beauty of God. And it was a beautiful reminder as 60 women gathered together of how God made each one of us very special in our own way. These things happen because of your support. So I want to thank you for all you do and remind you that you can give online at schweitzer.church slash give. And now here's Pastor Spencer with week five of our series, Revelation.
2: Welcome today. My name is Spencer. So glad that you're here with us. Uh, today is part five of our series on the most interesting book of the Bible. We're talking about Revelation. And this series is a little different than normal. For one, Revelation is just different. We're talking about different kinds of things. Last week, we talked about the great prostitute of Babylon. Never before have I preached a sermon about that. Uh, today, we're going to talk about final judgment. Again, not something we normally talk about, but that's where Revelation takes us. So that's, that's where we go. Um, the series is also different because if you've heard a lot of teaching and preaching on Revelation, our approach might be a little different than you've uh, heard before. Because what I've noticed is that when it comes to Revelation, a lot of people start paying attention in chapter four. And that's because that's when the weird stuff starts. And we're all attracted to the weird stuff. We wanna, wanna read about that to understand all of those details. But when we do that, we miss the first three chapters, which give us what we call context. In the first three chapters, what we learn is that this book was written to some specific people, real people in a real place in real time people with real struggles and questions and things that they were going through that need to be addressed. And so what we've learned in the first three chapters is that this book was written to seven churches who lived in what the Roman Empire called the province of Asia. We call that modern day Turkey. Here's a map that shows these churches in modern day Turkey. Now, these churches, they had these real things they're going through that this whole book was written to them and so the book starts with seven messages from Jesus to each one of these seven churches. And so what we're doing in this series is we're reading each week one of those messages And then we're using that message to springboard into some other parts of the book to help us understand what would this book have meant for them, these very early Christians, and what they were going through. And what we find is that when we read this book through the lens of the people who would have received it, this is not a scary, intimidating book, but rather this is a book of good news, encouragement, and hope, especially to those who suffer. So this is part five. We're going to read about the church in Sardis, chapter three of Revelation. Here is what Jesus says to them. He says, to the angel, or it could also be translated messenger, of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We're talking here about the churches. He holds the churches, not just this church, all the churches. Seven is a number for completion, for, 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 for uh, fullness, for all of them. And so Jesus holds all the churches. And these seven messages are not just written for them. They're written for us as well, for everybody, for all the churches. So Jesus holds the whole church. And then he goes on and says to, to these Christians, it says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now hearing Jesus say, I know your deeds, that's either going to be good news or bad news because you can't hide anything from Jesus. He, he knows the truth. And so I know your deeds and you have this reputation. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, listen, you're, you're, really, you're really dead. Now I don't know if you've ever been part of a, of a dead church. I, I have. And one of the things I've learned about being a part of a dead church is that a church is dead long before they close the doors and sell the building like a, like a church is dead when when they've lost sight of the mission of God to reach out into the world to seek and to save the lost a, a church is dead when it becomes inwardly focused a, a church is is dead when the past becomes more important than the future like a, like a church is dead in these ways where we lose sight of what God is doing in our midst, where, where we become more concerned about activities than we do, you know, intimacy with the Father. The church is, is dead when these, things, when these things happen. And so Jesus, you know, he sees this church in Sardis. And I think that's he's, what he's getting at here is that your doors may be still be open, but, but, you're, but you're really dead. You've lost sight of what's really important. And so here's what he says next. Verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And often in the Bible, Jesus talks about how he's going to come, he's going to return like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when it's going to happen, but you have to be ready. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis, Who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. And if you're reading from your Bibles, you need to underline, circle, star, highlight, whatever it is you do, that phrase, the book of life. We're going to come back to it, it's so important. So never blot out that name of the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Then whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a this is a pretty harsh word that Jesus says to this church that needs to wake up. I mean, he talks about their names being blotted out of the book of life, and that's a harsh thing. We're going to talk about that in a, in a few minutes. But before we get there, let's let's tease out a little bit about what do you think is happening to this church that they're they're dead and they need to wake up. What well, what what does this mean? And I think there's a really big clue to to what this means and as you read through here and what's not said. Here's a little pro tip when you read the Bible. Sometimes you read the Bible, you gotta always pay attention to what's there on the page, but sometimes you also gotta pay attention to what's not on the page, what's not being said. And if you've been with us throughout this series, um, one of the things you would have heard us talk about each time we, we read about one of these messages to these seven churches is that Jesus, up until now, has always had a, either a direct um, reference or an allusion to, to persecution. This is the first church where Jesus is talking to that, that doesn't have any reference whatsoever to persecution, which I, I think is a clue to what might be going on in this church. I mean, as we've talked through this series, we've talked at length about the persecuted church, the early church that, that lived in the Roman province of Asia. We talked about how some of these Christians uh, were, were giving up their lives for the sake of Christ violent, violent persecution that some of them are facing. Some of the persecution, as we talked about this series, was not violent. It was uh, property being confiscated because they didn't confess that Caesar is Lord. And so they were enemies of the state and they would have their property confiscated. Sometimes the persecution might be that they were barred. These Christians were barred from participating in the markets or the trade guilds because they didn't want to worship the idols of the Roman gods and the Greek gods that were associated with these things. So they were forced into poverty as they, as they no longer participate in the trade guilds. These, this persecution happened in, in, in all kinds of ways. And, and so as you think about life for these Christians in um, the first century in the Roman province of Asia, you know, persecution was a real thing. You know, they were not just being, you know, inconvenienced for Jesus. Like they were suffering and the suffering was real. They, they were experiencing real difficulty because of their confession that Jesus is Lord. Their lives were hard. They lived at risk. They must have experienced stress because danger and risk were always right around the corner. And this is is how they lived. They just lived understanding this, this knowledge that because of Christ, their lives were always in danger. And then you have this church in Sardis where Jesus doesn't even mention persecution. Now that doesn't mean that maybe there's no persecution happening, but probably what it means is that they're, they're not experiencing persecution to the same degree that the other uh, six churches are. And, and so somehow, maybe what, what's happening for them is that they've been lulled into a false sense of security. The word complacency comes to mind. Recently, I had lunch with a, a man who had served as a, as a missionary in in really dangerous places around the world. I'm not gonna share where he served or what organization he's been with for the sake of security, but he was sharing with me stories of, of Christian communities in different places around the world today that, that face the threat of real violence coming against them because of their witness for Christ. And then he told me stories of missionaries who, who um, have, have been detained or some have been tortured, some have been killed because of the, the cause of Christ. And these are, these are people who left the comforts of the West in order to go to these dangerous places to share the gospel because they believe God is calling all people and seeks all people to come to know him across the world as he's sharing these stories with me. And then he and then he had this challenge for me and he said, he said, how are how are we, and he means us, our church, how are we making disciples of people who are willing to embrace risk instead of just worship at the idol of comfort? I mean, again, complacency comes to mind. And, and when you are complacent, you, you, lose, you usually lose sight of what's really important. Like I remember the story from years ago. I had this mentor early in my career uh, who, who told me um, the story of a bad church meeting. Sometimes pastors love to tell stories of one another to, about bad church meetings. And he told me the story of a bad church meeting in the late 90s. Um, he was putting screens in their sanctuary, which at the time was a big deal. It's so, a, you know, new things that were going on in, in churches. So he's putting screens in the sanctuary. You've, you can imagine the congregation, some of the congregation did not like that screens were going in the sanctuary. So they had a, a church meeting about it. And, and he told the story about how everyone came and there was these, these people who were really upset that, that screens were coming into the sanctuary and, and they had all kinds of things to say about that. And then, and then finally, this man gets up, a leader in the church, he gets up and he gives him to the microphone and he says to the congregation, he says, listen, we're in here talking about screens being put in the sanctuary when people in our city are going to hell. And my mentor he's just like, the room goes quiet as we realize what we're really about. Like sometimes complacency, you, you lose perspective of what's really important. You lose sight of what's really at stake. And I think this is what Jesus is getting to with this church in Sardis. They're dead. Maybe it's because they've been lulled into the false sense of security. Maybe it's because they become complacent and therefore things have become mostly about them. And so Jesus has this message to them to wake up, to remember what's really at stake. And and, and he says this in, in verse 5 of chapter 3. He, he gets really specific and he, he reminds them of what's at stake because he talks about the book of life. Now in Revelation, the book of life is an incredibly important theme. You see it in lots of places. You first meet the book of life in chapter 13. Um, Revelation 13 introduces the mark of the beast. And the book of life is, is referenced alongside of it as a way of resisting the mark of the beast. Now, if you're with us a few weeks ago when we talked about the mark of the beast, we talked about how the mark of the beast is not so much about you know, the barcode or the tattoo or the or the chip that's going to be implanted into people's skin, but, but really what it's about on a deeper level is about cultural conformity. It's about resisting the cultural uh, temptations around us. And, and the mark of the, the beast is therefore you know, resisted by understanding that our names are in the book of life. Uh, we see the mark or the, the book of life again in chapter 17 with the great prostitute of Babylon who is who is uh, tempting the world to go and worship idols, to go away from um, the truth of God in order to worship these false gods. And the book of life, again, is, is referenced here as a way to stand strong, even with the temptation for idolatry that's all around you. You see the book of life, again, in chapter 21, which is about the new heaven and the new earth and, and what it is that God brings about because of this. But, but the place you see the book of life mentioned the most is Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most debated and certainly uh, one of the most scary chapters in Revelation. It's about the final judgment. And in Revelation 20, it comes on the heels of this great battle between Jesus and Satan, uh, where Jesus is presented as this rider on a white horse who's faithful and true, and they battle these forces of evil and good, battle, Jesus and Satan battle. And then comes chapter 20, which is the final judgment and uh, it's, it's again, it's like the scariest chapter in Revelation. So let's go read it. Revelation 20, it's not very long. And I want to read all of it to you. No commentary. I'm just going to read it straight through because I, I want you to catch how, how all of this is, is put together in Revelation 20. It's only 15 verses, but here's how it goes. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, And because of the word of God, they had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Endeavor. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, first, there is so much that we could talk about in this chapter. Oh my goodness, there's so many things we could go through in these details. But for the sake of time, uh, we really only want to talk about uh, two big ideas we see in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, first, uh, Revelation 20 is one of the most debated uh, parts of the Bible, especially this reference we said several times there to the thousand years. Sometimes it's called the millennium. And uh, this thousand years uh, is debated. There are books and books and books and books that are written about this. There are whole denominations that have been formed about how do you understand the thousand years. And essentially there's three main camps of the thousand years of how you read this uh, that you're going to find in different places, different commentaries, different books about Revelation uh, one camp is called the Pre-Millennialists, and these are people who believe that Jesus will return before the thousand years it's referenced in uh, Revelation 20. If you've read the Left Behind books, these are Pre-Millennialists. There's also a camp that, that believes uh, they call themselves Post-Millennialists. These are people who believe that Jesus will return after the thousand years. The Great Awakening and the people who came out of the Second Great Awakening, these great revivals of the, of the 19th century, these were folks who largely were Post-Millennialists. And then there's a group, uh, who would call themselves millennialist or amillennialist. And these are people who see the thousand years as largely symbolic as so much in Revelation is, is largely symbolic. And it's about a, a kind of a bigger truth that's behind that. And so you might wonder, you know, you know, where am I in this? Because there's again, books and books and books and books that are written about this de- debated and denominations informed. And maybe you, you follow that kind of debate. And so here's, here's where I'm at in, in, in that debate. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. And nor do I find that debate, honestly, all that, all that interesting or, or helpful. Uh, you know, I tend to read Revelation pretty symbolically, so I tend to see myself maybe mostly as an amillennialist, but, but I, don't, I don't see it all that, all that helpful or all that interesting because I think there's, there's, there's a much bigger point in Revelation 20 that when we focus on the thousand years, which some people are tempted to do, we begin to lose sight of the much, much bigger point. And the bigger point is very interesting and very, very important. Because the bigger point is this, it's about the the final judgment of God. And as you read Revelation 20 and you read about this this bigger point of, of the final judgment of God, you see that this whole chapter, what it does is you see God judging evil once and for all. And this opens the door to the next chapter, chapter 21 and chapter 22, which tell about the new heaven and the new earth. But you don't get to Revelation 21 and 22, this paradise of God, the new heaven, new earth, until God first judges evil once and for all. In Revelation 21, there's this great verse about the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 4 goes like this. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And then it says, For the old order of things has passed away. Now, for the old order of things to pass away, well, that means that the old order of things has to pass away, right? You you can't get to the new heaven and the new earth where there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain unless the old order of things pass away. And for that to happen, God has to judge evil once and for all. Now, this of course brings up a whole big controversy because as we talk about God judging evil, which opens the door for the new heaven and new earth, we're now talking about eternal judgment, the final judgment, or what some people would call hell. Now, my experience, there are two kinds of churches in the world. There are those who talk about hell way too much, and then there are those who don't talk about hell nearly enough. And to be honest, we're really in that second category. And that's not to say that I like want to be preaching about hell a lot more than I, I do, because I certainly don't. But it is to say that that there is something that is so absolutely vital as we think about salvation that we have to also understand judgment. That you, you can't get to salvation without first understanding the judgment of God, how God judges things that are right and true, and how important this is then to understanding the, the move that God has for us into the new heaven and the new earth. Now, this brings us into this controversy, and certainly let's ask a, you know, a, a basic question here. You know, do, do we really believe this? I have people ask me this from time to time. Do I, do I really believe this? Do we really believe this? As a, as a church body, do we really believe that there is final judgment? Personally, as the pastor who gets the microphone most Sundays, do, do I really believe that there is a final judgment? Do I really believe in this, in this thing of, of hell? And, and the short answer is yes. And, and there's a good reason for that. There's a good reason for that. You know, sometimes when I talk about hell, and I don't talk about hell very often, but sometimes when I do, um, people will, will come up with questions. And, and one of the questions that, that I've heard a lot is, well, how could a loving God ever send someone to hell? And I totally get the sentiment. I get the question. I get, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, universalism, which is the idea that everyone is saved, is really, really attractive. I'm, I'm right there with you. I totally get it. But when I hear that question, I usually ask a follow-up question to that person, and I ask them this. How could a loving God not judge evil? Like, how could a loving God just, you know, turn his face and just pretend that the evil didn't happen? Or how could a loving God just, you know, sweep the evil under the rug and pretend it's not, it's not real? Like, for God to be loving and just, he has to judge evil. I mean, I think about it in terms of these seven churches that we're reading about in the province of Asia in the first century. I mean, these are people who suffered, they were oppressed. They 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 were abused, they, they were persecuted, some of them gave their lives. I mean Revelation twenty, we read about we read about people being beheaded for the sake of, of Christ. Like there's real evil in the world. It needs to be dealt with. I mean, I don't I don't understand how anyone can look at our world and see the war and the racism and the oppression and the injustice that we see all around us, the abuse, and and not see that there is a real presence of evil in the world that has to be addressed. And to make it even more personal, like I can't look in my own heart and not recognize the ego and the pride, the deceit, the lust, the greed that drives me in my own heart and understand that this needs to be dealt with. I, I'm not going to be able to get to this new heaven, new earth. It's not gonna, that door doesn't open for us until evil has finally been dealt with. The Bible scholar N.T. Wright, he he says this really well. He's got this great quote full of wisdom about how the judgment of evil opens this door for the new heaven and the new earth. And he describes it like this. I want to read this to you. I think it's a great, great quote full of wisdom. But he says, he says, the whore has been overthrown. The great prostitute in chapter 17, 18, and 19, the one who's alluring the nations to worship false gods. Okay, so what happens in chapter 20 with judgment? Well, okay, the whore has been overthrown and it is time for the bride to appear. The dragon, the monster, or the, or the beast, and the false prophet have been destroyed. And it's time for God and the lamb to be revealed with the spirit enabling the bride to say, come. And then he has this line, it's so good. He says, the rule of death is at an end. The rule of life is about to begin. Now, the only way for the rule of life to begin is for the rule of death to be judged. It's for the rule of death to be, to be ended. Hell is, is, is absolutely necessary because the judgment of God is right and true and it brings us into the perfect paradise. I mean, Jesus, he didn't die on the cross and rise again so that you can just be, you know, a little bit better person. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again so that you can cope with your anxiety and have better emotional health. Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise again so that you know you can have this trite message that God loves you, which he does, but there's so much more to that. Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save you from hell, from eternal judgment. Jesus died on the cross and rose again to save you to heaven, to perfect paradise, to invite you to come and experience life with him for all of eternity, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done. Now he invites everyone who trusts in him, who believes in him, to come and experience life everlasting. And so as we think about this message of, of hell and eternal judgment, we see that it's absolutely important if we want to get to this place of perfect paradise because evil has to be judged. Now sometimes when I've talked about hell, I get another question. People will ask me, well, who's there? And quite thankfully, I can answer that with that's well above my pay grade. I don't don't spend a lot of time thinking about that or worrying about that. I I take comfort in in one of the things that C.S. Lewis used to teach, and C.S. Lewis would teach, that in the end, um, everyone gets what they want. And his teaching was simply that this, all of us are living our lives on a certain trajectory. We're we're living our lives either for the rule and will of God in our lives in the world, or living, living our lives opposed to that. And as we submit to Christ and trust in him and live our lives in him, we're living this trajectory that gets lived out into eternity or, or we lived our lives opposed to him. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not a universalist is because I see lots and lots of people who are living their lives opposed to God. So why would they ever want to spend eternity somewhere where God's will is done all the time? God has to judge the evil in the world. He has to judge the evil in us in order for this new life, perfect paradise to come about. And so we as Christians understand this great salvation that's before us. And we know that there will be a day where we stand before the judgment of God. But that's not something that we have to be afraid of. Because as Christians, as we stand before the judgment of God, we do so understanding that we stand before God covered in the blood of the Lamb. We do so understanding that because our trust, our faith is in Him, our names are written in the book of life. And so we get to receive this great salvation, being saved from hell and into heaven. This is the salvation that we celebrate. Now, sometimes we might become complacent. Sometimes we lose perspective of what life is really about. And sometimes we start to think that maybe Jesus is just part of my life, and my, not my whole life. And, and we start to live for ourselves instead of for the purpose of God and You know what I think Jesus would say to us in those times? We gotta wake up. And we have to remember what's really at stake. And we have to remember what it is that he has done to welcome us into the new heaven and the new earth. Let's pray together. So Father, today we um, think about this final judgment. It's a heavy topic. Our name's being written in the book of life. It's not something we have to be afraid of. It's not something we have to fear, but it's something you are inviting us to because of what you have done for us on the cross. And for anyone who is with us today who doesn't know the hope of salvation, who, who doesn't know how they stand before you and they don't have confidence of this, would today be a day that they could just cross the line of faith a simple act of prayer to say, Lord, I, I trust you. Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins. And lead my life. We want to live our lives in the confidence that we know that your judgment is right and true, that we can trust you with absolutely everything in our life, and that you can be the center of who we are. So Lord, we turn ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. Forgive us of our complacency and help us to remember what's really at stake. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray today. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today for worship. I want to thank our team for making this service possible and a special thank you to Pastor Spencer for his powerful message. If you know someone who might benefit from this message, please share it with them on social media. We thank you for doing that. And now I invite you to join us next week for week six of the series Revelation. Have a great week.
3: On the mountain, when my lips spoke, out of His mouth came fire and smoke. Looked all around me, it looked so fine, I asked the Lord if all was mine. Oh, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Oh, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Old Jordan River, so chilly and cold It chills the body, not the soul When Satan tempts me, it's all in vain With my Lord Jesus I remain Oh, every time I feel the Spirit Moving in my heart I will pray Oh, every time I feel the Spirit (laughs) Amen. <laughs>